teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, when we were speaking about this topic, we mentioned the regulative principle of worship, which is we must worship God only in the way that he has prescribed in his word. There are some people who believe because of this that we must only use the Psalms of David in our public praise. In our public worship services, we must only employ that which is found in the 150 Psalms in the Psalter. I've been seeking to establish that that is not the teaching of Scripture. We are not so restricted. And I've given a number of reasons why I believe that to be the case. There are those who will tell us that the threefold division of the book of Psalms is psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Therefore, this statement that we are to use psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is merely telling us that we are to use all of the psalms that are in the Psalter. But of course, that particular threefold division is taken from an Old Testament a version that's in the Greek language, it's called the Septuagint. You'll see it in the Latin tongue as under these letters LXX. And that's where they get that from. The idea that Psalms, hymns and spiritual songs is referring only to the book of Psalms. But we who do employ hymns of human composition, songs that are spiritual, beg to differ from that. And when it comes to the regulative principle, it's interesting to me that while some will say that applies to our sung worship, it doesn't seem to apply to our praying. Because when you think about it, in prayer, believers are not restricted to the language of the Scriptures. Now, our praying should be scriptural. It should be in keeping with Scripture. And there's nothing wrong even with quoting Scripture in prayer. But you and I are not restricted when we talk to God to using only the words of the Bible. We can talk to God in our own words. We can pray to the Lord and ask for things, as he has told us we ought to do. And we see in the Bible, Jesus teaching his disciples by way of pattern about prayer. He says, after this manner pray ye. He didn't say, these are the exact words that you have to use. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, and so on. The Lord did not say those are the exact words you have to use every time you pray. He said, after this manner, pray. In other words, according to this pattern, this is a pattern prayer. You're coming to God, our Father in heaven. You're seeking to exalt God in prayer. Hallowed be thy name. You make requests before God in prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. These are all requests that we make of the Lord, but we're not restricted to those words. And you will find plenty of places in the Bible where men came to the Lord using their own words. So is it not interesting to read, for example, the praises of Mary, the mother of the Lord, of Elizabeth, her cousin, and of Zacharias, Though they were using Old Testament terminology, when they prayed and praised, they were actually uttering to God their own words. 
They were not bound and restricted only to the book of Psalms. Again, as I said last time, in our preaching, no such restriction is in force. We employ both Testaments, the Old Testament, the New Testament, in our preaching. And we preach from the vantage point of a full revelation of gospel light and truth. We're not living in the Old Testament. We're living in the New Testament. We have the full revelation of God in His Word for our use. So if this is true of our praying, and it's true of our preaching, why should it not be true of our praise? Why should that also not be the case when it comes to our singing? Should it be any different? Now think about this. The language of the Psalter, that's the book of Psalms, and by the way, when they're sung, they are sung to metrical tunes. So they're not actually the Psalms, they are paraphrases of the Psalms. But when you think about it, the language of the Psalter is very much language of anticipation of the coming of Christ, not realization that he has come. You understand what I mean? It's looking forward to Jesus' coming. It's not from the standpoint of looking back as we do, to say he has come. And that's why you have mentioned made in Psalm 51 and other places of whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. We don't offer sacrifices like that today. We don't have whole burnt offerings. We don't bring goats and calves to offer to God as they did in the old economy. Now why did they do that in the old economy? Because they were figures and types of Christ who was yet to come. Remember when John the Baptist was preaching, Jesus came walking along, John chapter 1, and you read there in verse 29 that John stopped and he pointed and he said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Now what did he mean by that? The Lamb of God. Well everybody there, all that whole Jewish audience, would understand right away what John was saying. The sacrificial system was built on the offering of lambs. Every single day that they lived, they had a morning offering and an evening offering of a lamb or a kid of the flock. So when he said, behold, the lamb of God, he's obviously telling them, this is the sacrifice, the final sacrifice, of which all those Old Testament sacrifices were types and were an anticipation of his work. So the basic message in the book of Psalms is this. Christ is coming. That's the message. Christ is coming. They're mostly prophetic. The Psalms are part of what we call the progressive revelation of truth. As you go through your Bible, you read from Genesis to Revelation, you see that there's greater and increasing light all the way through. The Lord's giving more information all the time until it culminates in the full light of the gospel. There was a lot of anticipation of that working up to Christ's coming. That's why people were kind of confused, even the disciples sometimes, about what is this? What does this mean? The light was dawning upon them. But the basic message of progressive revelation was leading up to the full light of the New Testament coming of the Saviour. And that's the point about progressive revelation. It leads on to a full and final revelation, which is, for us, the message of the New Testament. Matthew through to Revelation. And so just as in our preaching, we're not restricted to the message that the Lord is coming, 
We actually proclaim, don't we? Christ has come. And we can look back to it and remember that he has come. Before us tonight is the table of the Lord. What's it for? Well, the Lord Jesus instituted this for believers so that they might take the bread and take the cup, both of which remind you, they speak to you of the body and blood of Christ. They're not the body and blood of Christ. They never do become the body and blood of Christ. There's no such thing as transubstantiation. There's absolutely no change in the substance of this. And if you take communion, you know that by your senses. It smells like bread. It tastes like bread. It feels like bread. It is bread. It doesn't feel like a human body. It doesn't taste like a corpse. The same with the juice. It tastes like that. It's not blood. Do you ever bite your lip? And you taste it? Mm, ugh. I don't like the taste of blood. We know the taste of blood. When I drink this, it tastes nothing like blood. It never becomes the blood of Christ. It's a picture. It's a type. Just like when you come into our home and you see pictures of our youngsters and our grandchildren, I can say to you, this is Rachel, this is Rebecca. Now you know that's not Rachel and Rebecca. You know they're pictures. They're photographs. But you know what I mean. When I say this is Rachel, this is Rebecca, you understand what I mean. We understand what Jesus means when he says, this is my body and this is my blood. The Lord was standing in front of them when he said that. They could see him there. That which they ate at the Last Supper was not his blood and his body. They were pictures. They were types. They were symbols. And so, whenever we have communion, what are we saying? Christ is coming? No, we're saying Christ has come. He has come. And we remember his death till he come the second time. So just as in our preaching we're not restricted to the message that the Lord is coming, we proclaim that Christ has already come, so in our songs, in our singing, the doctrine of Christ and the gospel is to the forefront. Now, it will be argued, well, the doctrine of Christ and the gospel is in the Psalter. It's in the book of Psalms. Yes, it is. But it's there by anticipation. It's there in type. It's there in picture. But it's Old Testament language. And again, I could refer to those scriptures that I referred to last time. Psalm fifty-one, nineteen. Psalm 66, 15. Psalm 81 verse 3, all of which speak of offerings and burnt offerings. Now it is argued that we now view the book of Psalms from a New Testament standpoint. And therefore we can put on, if you excuse the analogy, our New Testament spectacles. And we can look at the book of Psalms and we understand the book of Psalms, what it's talking about in the light of the New Testament. That's true. But could it not be said that God could well have framed the Old Testament in such a way that the New Testament would never have needed to be written? But he didn't. We have both Testaments. And neither Testament is to be neglected, and that includes in our singing. That includes in our singing. The fact is that the New Testament is an era of greater light and privilege for God's people. 
If we'd lived in the Old Testament, we could understand the gospel. Yes, just like Abraham did. He saw Christ's day. He saw it and was glad. The psalmist David talked about Christ who was yet to come, his resurrection and so on. He would not leave his soul in hell or suffer him, his Holy One, to see corruption. Job was able to say, I know that my Redeemer liveth, that he'll stand at the latter day upon the earth. There was a lot of light in the Old Testament days. They weren't stupid. But nonetheless, we are a privileged people in that we now live in an age of greater light. Because we have the New Testament as well as the Old. And our singing as well as our preaching and our praying should be a reflection of this. We may, and I would say we must, base our hymns and our songs of praise on the New Testament Scriptures. Tell me this, why would God not want us to sing about the full revelation of His Son? I want you to notice a couple of texts of Scripture with me. Turn to John's Gospel, chapter 7. John, chapter 7, and verse 39. We'll read verse 38 to get the understanding of the connection here. John, chapter 7, verse 38. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And again, this is figurative language. The Lord's not telling you that you're going to have your stomach opened and there's all these rivers of water going to flow out. That is not what he means. And the next verse tells us this in parenthesis. But this spake he of the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. And what that means is the Holy Ghost was not yet poured out in the fashion in which he would be poured out after Pentecost. That had not yet happened. But if you go over now to Ephesians chapter 3, you see this other text, Ephesians 3, and verses 4 and 5. Whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. you see that? There's revelation that has now been given that in other ages was not given. There was darkness. There was more of a shadowy situation. But now this is an age of light. The Holy Ghost, you see, was present in the Old Testament. No doubt about that. But he was not then poured out. And this, friends, is a New Testament, a New Covenant truth. Now, it is true that the book of Psalms may be viewed, and it could even be sung from, in the full light of New Testament revelation. But how can the language of David and Asaph be the most appropriate expression of a New Testament believer's experience? I don't think it is. John Murray, a great theologian, when Princeton was a good place, he said, quote, All evangelical truth can be found in the Psalter, but not to the degree in which it is now made known. Not to the degree in which it is now 
made known. In Old Testament worship, especially in the ritual of the temple, Levitical choirs took the lead. There were people from the tribe of Levi, priests, and they were the leaders in sung worship. But now worship involves the whole church singing in the fullness of the Spirit. We don't have a special group of people who are like the Levitical singers. Although, in some evangelical circles, have invented a new position called the worship leader. I don't find that in Scripture. Don't find it in Scripture, but it's something that prevails in many churches. But it is true in the Old Testament that Levitical choirs took the lead in worship. You see, the temple worship was made up of their songs. But now today, the worship of the church involves the entire church singing in the fullness of the Spirit. Then, is it the case that the language of Christian praise is to be always confined to the words of an age of less light and less privilege? That's a good question. Is the progression from Old Testament to New Testament only to be reflected in our praying and in our preaching, but not in our praise? Not as we sing to the Lord? Let me give you a quotation from Isaac Watts, who was a great hymn writer. He said this, Can we believe this to be the best method of worshipping God? Asked Watts. To sing one thing and mean another. Besides that, the very literal sense of many of these expressions, and he's talking about the Psalms, is exceeding deep and difficult, and not one in twenty of a religious assembly can possibly understand them at this distance from the Jewish days. And there's a lot of things that you sing in the Psalms that are not that easy uh, to understand. And Watts gives many instances from the Psalms to show us that there are many hundreds of verses in that book which a Christian cannot properly assume without putting a very different meaning upon them. I think it's interesting in examining this issue to consider the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. There's John on the Isle of Patmos. He's there because of his faithfulness to the Lord. He's there as a prisoner. And the Lord speaks to him in vision, right from chapter 1 and through the early chapters. And in that time, John constantly sees and hears the redeemed ones in heaven. The Lord gives him a sight of heaven. What's happening there in heaven? And he hears and he sees the redeemed of the Lord singing And they're singing the praises of the Lamb. But you'll notice they're not singing from the Psalter. They're singing in New Testament language. How do I know that? Well, because I've read the Bible. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. Here is a heavenly vision. And it says in verse 6 of Revelation 5, This is John writing, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a Lamb, capital L, the Lord Jesus, a Lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, 
sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders, of course these are representative persons, fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps, and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, or singing about the death of Christ, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. They're singing about redemption through the blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. This is a heavenly scene. Notice how they're worshipping. They're praising the Lamb. And they're not employing the Psalter. But they're using what I call New Covenant language. You turn over to Revelation chapter 14. The same thing can be said there. From verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. One day in the hospital, there was a lady who's a volunteer sitting in an area, in the open area of the hospital, playing a harp. It's beautiful. I went up to her. She was Asian. And as she was playing, I said, that's beautiful. I said, you know, that's the only instrument that I know of that's in heaven. That's a heavenly instrument. Because the Bible says they're, they're harping with their harps. I said, so I hope you're practicing up for heaven. She smiled. But notice verse 3. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. They're singing a new song. You go to chapter 15, verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvellous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thy King of saints. New Testament, heavenly worship. Would it not be strange if John the Beloved could, while he was on the earth, be listening to such singing as that? as long as he didn't join in with it himself or use such words in his own worship with other believers on the earth. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? He's hearing these people in heaven. They're not singing from the Psalter. They're singing in praise of the Lamb. They're singing about the blood. But because he's restricted to the book of Psalms, he wouldn't be able to sing those songs himself. That doesn't make sense. It's absurd. Heaven's choirs may sing, worthy is the Lamb, and so can I. I'm not restricted to singing Old Testament psalms. I do sing Old Testament psalms, by the way. But I sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I do not believe that God has made such a rule for the church as this, that we may only sing from the Psalter. We may sing of Christ of Jesus and of our Heavenly Father and of the joys of heaven. 
I have friends who are exclusive psalm singers. I don't wish them any ill. They may be very sincere, no doubt they are. But I personally believe that they are sincerely wrong. The point is well made that in churches where exclusive psalmody prevails, there is often a distinct lack of emphasis on the joy of salvation. Now there are some who may take issue with that. They may tell me that that is not the case, but I want you to know I have checked that out and I have seen that for myself. I've seen it in Reformed churches in Scotland. I've seen it in the Dutch Reformed churches. Very often, not necessarily always, but very often, there is an absence of joy in the singing. There's usually a distinct lack of emphasis on the joy of salvation where exclusive psalmody prevails. It's a missing element in worship and it's often missing even in public prayer. I've been in Reformed churches where ministers and some of the men have prayed. And I have listened in vain to hear one of them thank the Lord for his salvation. To hear them personally thanking the Lord for the day and the hour when they were saved by grace. They don't pray like that in many cases. It's almost like they're afraid to. I had a friend when I was in Scotland who belonged to a church like that. And he himself believed in exclusive psalmody. He was a good man. But he said to me, brother, I have to admit in my church... There's a lack of joy when they come to before the Lord in prayer. He said, you'd never hear anybody like you do in your church thanking the Lord for saving their precious souls. Yet that's the language of Scripture, is it not? It's a missing element in worship quite often in public prayer. What is it? It's the language of assurance. It's a language of assurance. And certainly in many Reformed churches where they are psalms only, as far as they're singing, oftentimes there seems to be a fear of using the name Jesus. They don't use the name Jesus. Isn't that strange? Is it not most likely because Old Testament language only is being used in song and it tends to be the case in their praying as well? See, they don't sing about Jesus. Oh, they do in type. They do in terms of anticipation. When they're talking about offerings and burnt offerings, they mean as fulfilled in Christ, but they don't sing about the name of Jesus. It's never mentioned. Never ever is the name of Jesus mentioned in song in churches where there is exclusive psalmody. I believe that to be a huge deficit for God's people. Think about the subject that is at the center of the gospel message. What is it? We preach Christ crucified. That's at the center of the gospel. Christ crucified. 
By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the psalmist wrote in places in the Psalms about Calvary. But they did so in the language of anticipation. You'll never read in the book of Psalms words like this. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 Paul wrote that in the New Testament, but you'll not find that in the Psalms. In Psalm 22, which is the great psalm of the crucifixion, we see quite clearly the cross of Christ. But to try to tell me that the words of that psalm are all that the believer needs to sing about his Savior's death is a very strange conclusion. One who defended exclusive psalmody wrote this. No human poet can advance beyond Psalm 22 or indeed approach anywhere near it. Now, as has been pointed out, a statement like that confuses two different things. First of all, our words to God are not required to be identical with his words to us. We've already made that point in talking about the Lord's Prayer and the praying that takes place in the Bible. But the question, how can it be an improvement in church worship to substitute uninspired human compositions for the Word of God? It assumes that there's no difference between revelation and our response to that revelation. You see, God's words stand on their own. That's divine revelation. There's nothing like the Word of God. This is true. But in our worship, we don't restrict ourselves to the words of divine revelation. We're responding to the words of revelation. We're responding to God's mercy to us. That's reflected in our singing. Psalm 22 is an inspired foreshadowing of the sufferings of Christ. But it certainly doesn't follow that because that psalm is inspired, it has to be the most appropriate language that we as believers can use, standing as we do in the light of the fulfillment of prophecy. Someone wrote, The fineness which a hymn or psalm affords is when the soul unto the lines accords. So the question, if it's asked whether Psalm 22 better expresses the feelings of a Christian to Christ crucified than such hymns as, O sacred head once wounded, and and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood, or when I survey the wondrous cross, we can surely say it doesn't. And it doesn't because it wasn't intended to do so. The difference between psalmody and hymnody is greater still when it comes to the language of full assurance of salvation. You know, when it comes to the subject of heaven, the hymns have excelled the Psalter. That's not an accident. On the subject of heaven, this was John Murray again who said this, hymns have excelled the Psalter. And again, to repeat an earlier point, My problem with the exclusive use of psalms in worship is, as one person says, the difficulty of satisfying Christian devotion with the songs of an earlier stage of revelation. You're saying, brother, we've gotten beyond the psalms. That's right. That's right, we have. The Bible in the New Testament is beyond the book of psalms. That's why we don't sing just psalms, we sing also hymns and spiritual songs. Even if they are of human composition. Now, on that point, 
We must, yes, sing about the New Testament as well as the Old. That is a very important point. Because the larger blessings of the New Testament era warrant additional forms of praise. But obviously, there will be those who will object and say, well, aren't a lot of hymns just tripe nonsense? Aren't many of the hymns that are written not even scriptural? Some of them aren't even agreeable to scripture. That's true. But I could say that about people's prayers. I could say there are prayers that are prayed, they're not scriptural at all. They're, they're, they're foreign to scripture. Does that mean that prayer is wrong? Does that mean we shouldn't pray? Because there are bad hymns, does that mean we shouldn't sing good hymns? Because there are unscriptural poems, does that mean we should only employ psalms? Because there are some bad poems? No. Let's have good ones. That's not an argument against hymn singing. There are lots of very unscriptural prayers that have been prayed. I've heard them many times. And I've heard a lot of unbiblical sermons being preached. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't preach. That's no argument that prayer and preaching should just be abandoned because there's some bad stuff. No. Here's what we are to do. We're to take care of what we sing. We're to take care of what hymns that we use. We're to take care of what spiritual songs we are employing. But let us not be afraid to sing about a full-orbed Christ and a full-orbed gospel. That's my point. All that we do, including the songs that we use in worship, should be even literally in the name of Jesus. Why can we not sing the name of Jesus? If we were to be restricted to the Psalter, that would be the situation. But let me say again, in heaven they sing a new song. That's a song of the shed blood of the Lamb. And while we're here on earth, I feel that we should be getting practiced up for heaven. We should be practicing for heaven. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. We should be singing about the precious blood. We should not be afraid to use our own words in song in the praise of God as long as they are agreeable to Scripture. I think it's a really absurd position to take that I could stand here as a minister of the gospel and I could be leading you in the public prayer and I could be quoting the words of a hymn and saying, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress, etc. And then as soon as I stop praying, I announce that hymn. People say, no, 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 that's unacceptable worship. Does that make sense? Doesn't make sense to me. And so what that has the effect of doing is causes ministers and others not to use hymns in their prayers. Not to use poems that are good in their prayers. But many will do it. Many will do it. And I have to ask the question, why is it okay to do it in prayer but not in your praise? What a wonderful thing it is to sing about the name of Jesus. I think it's a sad reality that some men who teach on exclusive psalmody, in fact all of them, if they're being consistent, would have to say this. The worship that takes place in churches like ours is false fire. It's false worship. Therefore, I would have to ask the question, 
What on earth would an exclusive psalmody minister be doing in the pulpit of a church that sings psalms? Why would he do that without involving himself in hypocrisy? Because that's what it is. If I'm joining in a service of worship, and I believe that a lot of the worship taking place there is false fire. Because that's what exclusive psalmists in worship will tell you. It's false fire. It's not acceptable worship. Why would I be anywhere near unacceptable worship? But many of them will do. And what they will do, I've seen it in my own congregation when I was in Scotland. They've come into the service because they believe in exclusive psalmody. They'll stand there dumb. They don't even open their mouth when the rest of us are singing. Because they believe that what we're doing is unacceptable to God. Well, if that's true, I, I wouldn't be anywhere near a church like that. Don't you see the hypocrisy of that? These people are singing around me something that God doesn't accept. But I'm going to join them in their service anyway. No, that's wrong. Let us worship the Lord according to his word. Let us use psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. And do it, as Paul says, we should, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And that's really important. Because it doesn't matter what you sing if it's not in your heart. I could be singing all kinds of things, and it's true, and it's proper, and it's scriptural. But if it's not my own experience, I'm actually singing lies. Do you ever think about that when you sing some of the hymns? Especially some of the hymns of consecration. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Do we mean it? Or are we just singing verbiage? Here, Lord, I give myself away, tis all that I can do. Do we mean that? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Are we giving him our souls, our lives, our all? Or are we just singing words? And I'm talking to myself. See, every time I point the finger at you there, I see three fingers and a thumb coming back this way. This applies to me just as much as it does to you. We're all in the same boat here. We should be thinking about our worship. Is it sincere? Is it the expression of what's really in our hearts? And it may be that we sing some things that we can't say are totally true because they're more of an aspiration than they are a reality. In other words, I want this to be the case. I want to consecrate my entire life to the Lord. But I know I'm full of the flesh and sin. Sin clings to me. It holds me back. I don't want to be like this. I want to be like Jesus. Well, if we sing that, the Lord understands what our hearts are. So I'm not telling you that you can't sing some of these hymns until you come to that place where it's true, because I think we'd have a lot of very quiet services. Well, let us aspire to these things. Lord, take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord. To thee. May the Lord make it to be so for his glory.